The scripture today comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit of God gave us for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So when I was 11 years old, I was in fifth grade, and I was at the school cafeteria for lunch. And ordinarily, uh, the school cafeteria is... It's, it's an anxiety-ridden place because you don't know where to sit. So it's a stressful environment as it, as it is. Uh, but that particular day uh, was stressful for another reason. And the reason for that is because I had recently become a Christian. And if there was one habit or practice that I knew that Christians often did before they ate, it was to pray for their food. And so not wanting to compromise my faith or look like a weirdo. This 11-year-old boy got very creative. And so what do I do? I sit down, put my tray on the table, and I pretend to tie my shoelaces. And I quickly say, dear God, thank you for this food. May it nourish my body. Because if you don't pray for that, it won't. I say, may it nourish my body. In Jesus' name, amen. And I quickly rose up again as if nothing had happened. And it's interesting to me that out of all the experiences that I've had in my life, that this is still one of the memories that is seared into my mind and in my heart. And I often wondered, why do I still remember this when it was so long ago? And I think a part of it is because whenever we tell stories about what happened in the past, it, we act as if we no longer struggle with those things in the present. But if I'm very honest with you, and I'm very transparent with you, there is a part of me that is embarrassed to identify myself as a follower of Jesus. There is a part of me that is secretly ashamed. There is a part of me that is a little bit scared about what people will think of me if they know what beliefs I hold so tightly uh, inside of my heart. Now, over the years, it's gotten a little bit easier because whenever people ask the question, what do you do for a living? I can't say cool things like you, like tech, or I'm a teacher, or advertising, or graphic designer. I can't say those things. I have to say I'm a pastor, right? So I have to, you know, be public. And it's always one of two responses. You don't look like a pastor, or are you allowed to get married? It's always like one of those two responses. And so over the years, I've gotten used to it. But it doesn't come easy for me 
or naturally for me, like some of you. So my question to you is, is there a small part of you, if you're very honest, that is secretly ashamed, embarrassed, or maybe even scared about what people will think about you because of what you believe in? Is there a part of you that is fearful of the social costs that come our way? You know, what's interesting is that about 20 years ago, uh, when new moms and dads had a kid that were not religious, they would sometimes see the church as a place to bring their kids to make them a good person or more moral or, or ethical. But those days are long gone. Uh, generally speaking, most parents don't do that kind of thing anymore. And a part of the reason for that is because uh, Christianity, the church, we just have such low cultural cachet now. And because our cultural cachet is so low and the social cost of following Jesus is so high, this is often the reason why there's a part of us that feels very embarrassed, ashamed, or we live as incognito uh, Christian. So how can we be a little bit more resilient, even proud, unashamed, and unembarrassed about what we believe in? I don't think the solution is to raise our cultural cachet so our social costs go down. Okay, I know that there's a part of us that get excited when cultural icons and prophets like Steph Curry and Bieber and Kanye and Carrie Underwood are vocal about their faith because it helps normalize what we believe in because now it's inserted into mainstream culture. And while I do think that that can help from time to time, generally speaking throughout history, when we try to be overly relevant and cool, we just end up looking superficial and shallow, super cheesy. So I don't think the answer for our boldness comes from raising our cultural cachet so that it will lower our social costs. Rather, I think the way forward is for us to understand that the gospel is the greatest bargain you will ever get. And when you understand that the gospel is the greatest bargain you will ever get, the social costs and any other costs pale in comparison to the bargain that you are about to get. First century Christians understood that because they not only faced a social cost for following Jesus, but they also faced physical costs for following Jesus. Yet, they were unembarrassed, unashamed, and they were proud of identifying themselves as followers of Jesus. Now, how did they do this? So if you take a look with me at verse 7 through 8, it says this. For the Spirit of God gave us, uh, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, Timothy often gets a bad rep for being timid Tim, but I want you to place yourselves in Timothy's shoes for a moment. Here is Timothy reading a letter from his mentor, the Apostle Paul, who wrote about half the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy from a dungeon underground. One of the interesting things about prisons back then is that prisons weren't places that you can stay for for a year or for life. There was no such thing as, as a life sentence in prison. 
Prisons were temporary holding places that you stayed in for just a few days before you walked on death row. So here is Paul writing underground in a dungeon, no toilets or anything like that, and he's writing this letter to Timothy telling him, don't be afraid, don't be timid. And here is Timothy reading this letter thinking, how could you not be timid? Because Timothy knew that if this could happen to the Apostle Paul, where he would be executed and beheaded for following Jesus, Timothy also knew that it could happen to him. And I suspect if we knew of not only the social cost, but the physical cost that could come our way for following Jesus, I don't know if any of us in this room would not be just a little bit timid. And so if we place ourselves in Timothy's shoes for a moment, we can understand why he often feels this way. Because at the end of the day, all of us want to be liked. We all want to be accepted. We don't want to be marginalized, ostracized, let alone die for being a nonconformist. We want to conform and assimilate to the majority culture and whatever the culture believes. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, to go back to the lunchroom cafeteria, it was not only stressful for me because, you know, you had to kind of pray. Someone, someone in the first service said that they didn't pretend to tie their shoelaces. They pretended to yawn and itch their eyes and they would quickly pray. <laughs> but we do all sorts of things, right? And so I, I, one of the other reasons why lunch hour is so, so stressful for me is because of the food that I brought. My grandmother would pack my lunch every day to school. And she would often pack me this thing called kimbap. Kim in Korean is seaweed, pop, rice. So it's rice wrapped in seaweed. And I cannot tell you how ashamed and embarrassed I was for bringing kimbap to school because everybody else had Lunchables, crackers, overly processed deli meat, and cheese. And I just wanted to be like everyone else. And as a result of that, because I was different, I was a nonconformist. I wasn't like the majority, but I was a minority. I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed. I hated being Asian American. Now, if I were to go back in time, knowing what I know now, that kimbap actually tastes far better than Lunchables, and it's actually far healthier than Lunchables. If I were to go back in time, knowing what I know now, that what I had and have is actually better than Lunchables. If I only knew that what I had was better, I would have never been ashamed. I would have never been embarrassed. I would have never been stressed out eating kimbap at lunch. But oftentimes when it comes to the gospel, we don't realize, we are not convinced or persuaded that what we have is better than anything else this world can offer us. And because we don't know it up here or in here, we are secretly ashamed, embarrassed, and afraid of the beliefs that we hold dearly inside of our hearts. Glenn Scrivener, in his book, The Air We Breathe, he wrote this, Today in the West, many consider the church to be dead or dying. Christianity is seen as outdated, bigoted, and responsible for many of society's problems. This leaves many believers embarrassed about their faith and many outsiders wary of religion. 
Do you resonate with this quote at all? And is there a way for us to be unembarrassed, unashamed, and proud of what we believe in despite the high social costs? And I think there is, but it's only when we understand the bargain that we get with the gospel is far greater than the cost. And this is what Paul is trying to persuade Timothy with in verse 9 through 10. And Paul tells Timothy, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Remarkable verse, remarkable. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, anytime we see the language saved, we have to ask the question, saved from what? And when we take a look at verse 10, we see that he has saved us from death. And so in Christian theology, there is nothing natural about death. Death is unnatural. So contrary to Mufasan theology, where death is natural and just a part of the circle of life, we believe that death is unnatural. It is not morally good. It is not even morally neutral. Death is actually evil. This is not the way that it's supposed to be, which is why whenever we meet someone who lost someone, or, or their fr friend, parent, whoever it might be, we never comfort them by saying, it's all good. It's just a part of the circle of life. Like, does that work? It doesn't. Why? Because this is not the way that it's supposed to be. In fact, every movie and story we read ends with a happy ending. Why does our end, why do our lives end with a tragedy? Deep down in our core, we know that this is not right. There is something purely evil about death. And what we read is that Jesus is the conqueror of death. But oftentimes when you don't know there is a hope for death, we are left bewildered. Dr. Joel Cho, who is a Christian and a doctor in the Bay Area, has the opportunity of uh, delivering the terrible news of fatal diagnoses to pa patients who are about to die. And one of the observations that he has made is this, I have been at many bedsides with patients near to the end of life. A few times, even as they took their last breath, I've lost track of the number of death certificates I filled over the years. Death is initially a confusing concept for most terminally ill patients. I haven't seen too many tears as I break the unfortunate news that a patient has a fatal disease. Instead, what's much more common is a look of bewilderment. Though everyone knows that death is inevitable, most don't know what to do with the news of a terminal diagnosis. They do not see impending death as a call to evaluate their lives and change. After the initial shock, most patients keep on living the remainder of their days as they always had. I've never seen a patient reverse their philosophy of life because the end is finally here. And I think one of the most haunting things about what Dr. Cho says is that look of bewilderment that most patients have. 
You see, contrary to the movies that we, we watch where a patient receives a fatal diagnosis and then they proceed to go on this epic adventure where they cross everything off their bucket list, you know, skydiving, going to Paris, traveling the world, most people in reality, when they hear the news of death, simply have a look of bewilderment at the hopelessness, the hopeless situation that they are in. And so they merely go back to living their lives as they used to. But what do we read in verse 10? That God is the destroyer of death. When you take a look at the end of Genesis, it ends with Joseph's death. When you take a look at the end of Deuteronomy, it ends with Moses' death. When you look at the end of Joshua, it ends with Joshua's death. But when you take a look at the Gospels, it does not end with Jesus' death. It ends with his resurrection and ascension. And what that means is if Jesus conquered death, one day death will not read our obituary, but we will read death's obituary because Jesus has conquered the grave. G.B. Hardy, a Canadian scientist, once said this. As he was investigating religions, when I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, ye shall live also. And how does he do that? Verse 9 says, not because of anything we have done, but because of his grace and according to his purpose. Not because of anything we have done, but according to his purpose and grace. Do you know what grace is, mercy? It's one of the unique concepts that is found in Christianity. I'll give you an example of what mercy is or grace. There was once this dude that went to a carnival and he saw a uh, artist doing uh, caricatures and portraits of people. And uh, this guy was like, man, I've never done this, but I've always wanted to get this done. So he, he pays the $20 to the, the cartoonist, the, the artist, and he says, yo, this, this picture better do me justice. And the artist looked at him and he said, sir, it is not justice that you need, but mercy. Justice, I thought there would be more laughs. <laughs> justice, just, I thought that was well executed. Justice, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. What do we deserve? Justice for our sins. The wrath of God. Death. But on the cross, Jesus takes on our justice that we deserve for our sins. He experiences the death that we deserved, and what we get is something we don't deserve. Grace, mercy, atonement for all of our wrongdoings, eternal life. And all you have to do is pray towards Mecca five times a day. And all you have to do is go on this special diet and never eat pork. And all you have to do is wear special clothes, and then you will get all this stuff. No, what do we see? 
nothing that you have done, but it is everything that he has done. All you have to do is to believe it, to receive it. That's it, because he does all the work, we get all the benefits. And on the cross of Jesus Christ that he laid down on, he was unashamed, unembarrassed to be in a relationship with us. He was not even ashamed to die naked in public. And the reason why he wasn't ashamed is because he wanted to enter into a relationship with you no matter the cost. Social, physical, and even spiritual when the father turned his face away. All because he wanted to be in a relationship with you. And when you understand that this bargain, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, for doing nothing, when you understand that that gospel message is a greater bargain than the social cost that you face, that, then you will understand that there is nothing to be ashamed about. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. However, if the social cost for you is greater than the bargain of eternal life and the atonement of all your wrongs, if that social cost is greater, of course you will be embarrassed. Of course you will be ashamed. Of course you will lower your head, pretend you're pretend to uh, tie your shoelaces and quickly pray. For Paul and for Timothy, this bargain was too good of a deal. And as a result of that, they were not only willing to live for Jesus, but to die for him. And if you take a look at verse 11 and 12, it says, and of this gospel, Paul says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Whatever you love, you will suffer for. Okay, ask Chloe Kim, the, the Olympic gold medal winning snowboarder, who, if you take a look at her laundry list of injuries, scratches to her face, bloody nose, concussion to the head, broken ankle, like the list goes on and on of, of her getting all these injuries from doing 720s on half pipes. And so the question is like, why are you beating your body like this? Why are you suffering like this? Because whatever you love, you will suffer for. And for Paul, because he loved Christ, he gladly suffered for him. But you know what? It's not enough just for us to suffer for Jesus. We also have to serve him as well. I don't know if you've ever heard this statement before, but I say it often in premarital counseling. It's much easier to die for someone than it is to live for someone. You know why? When you die, you just die once. But when you live for someone, you have to do it day after day after day. To a certain degree, it's a lot easier to die for someone than it is to live for someone. And this is why Paul tells Timothy in verse 9, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Paul didn't want Timothy just to be willing to suffer for Jesus, but he also wanted him to serve him and the local church. And what were some of Timothy's gifts? If you take a look at chapter 4, verse 13 to 14, it says this. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. 
do not neglect your gift. So Timothy's gift was preaching and teaching. And one of the things that I love about having a church in, in New York City is that all of you are crazy gifted. You know, a few weeks ago, I met someone new to our church, this brother who's a painter. How awesome is that? Uh, someone in our community is helping co-produce K-pop, a new musical for Broadway. How awesome is that? Others of you are crazy savvy with money. So many gifted and talented people in this room. Others of you great with humor, great at socializing, good with small talk, which is a great uh, skill set. Some of you are really good at hospitality, making people feel very comfortable. Others of you are great at giving gifts, making people feel special. Some of you can turn uh, ordinary things into beautiful things with decor and because you just have a good art, uh, eye for, for beauty and for art. There are so many gifted and talented people in this room and we are not called to just use our gifts to build our own portfolios and resumes, but we are to use the gifts that God has given to us to serve others uh, as well and not just for ourselves. And so we can approach our gifts in one of three ways. We can either be consumers and say, how are my needs being met? We can either be complainers and say, why aren't my needs being met? Or we can be contributors and say, how can I meet the needs of others that are in my midst? How can I use the gifts and talents that God has given to me to serve and bless others? Now, I will not go as far as to say that if you don't use your gifts, you'll lose it. No, you'll still have it. But if you don't use your gifts, that flame will become an ember. And an ember is basically useless unless it's a flame. So use the gifts that God has given to you. An ember does not help anyone, but a giant flame radiates heat to everyone that is in their midst. How can you use your gifts and talents to bless others and not just your own portfolios and resumes? And when you realize that Jesus came not only to suffer for us, but to serve us, it'll give you the strength to do that as well for others. Let me close by just saying, whatever happened to Timothy, I know that we're still on uh, chapter one, but if you fast forward to the end of his life in Hebrews 13, Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. And so we do know that eventually at one point in timid Timothy's life, at one point he does go to prison and somehow he is released. It turns out he wasn't so timid after all but he was unashamed and unembarrassed and empowered about what he believed in. And I wanna encourage you by saying that you do not have to live timidly either, but you can be unembarrassed, unashamed, and proud of what you believe in as well. Let me just close with this. My wife, one of the things that attracted me to my wife when we were first dating is that most of my wife's friends were actually not Christian. And yet, even though they were not Christian, she was actually very vocal and public about her faith in a non-offensive way. They, they love her, her friends. But she was able to, to, to do the dance where she, she didn't hide her faith, didn't like Bible thump on everyone, but she was still very public about her faith. And it would be as simple as something like this. Hey, Hannah, how was your weekend? Oh, it was great. You know, we had a wedding on Saturday, and then, you know, we went to church on, on Sunday like we usually do. End of conversation. Following week. Hey, Hannah, how was your weekend? Oh, it was great. Oh, my gosh. 
the venue that we used to meet at for our church, they abruptly told us we can't meet there anymore. And so we're like scrambling to find this new venue. And then she'll share about that. But the point is, it's organic. It's natural. It's a part of who we are. We all have multiple things that comprise our identity. We're sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, husbands, father, uh, fathers, mothers, wives. We are, you're, you're, you're a banker. We all have multiple things that comprise our identity. But who is that durable core of who you are that goes with you wherever you go? And I would say that that durable core of who you really are is a child of God. And we cannot be ashamed of that. Just as you cannot be ashamed of your ethnicity and the food that you bring to the lunch school cafeteria, you cannot be ashamed of who you are in Christ. In Luke 9, 26, it says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus Christ was shamed on our behalf. He was humiliated, and he faced an incredible physical and spiritual cost on our behalf. And when you realize that he did that for you, no arena that you walk into during the week, whether it's the office, the living room, your apartment, the bar, happy hour, no arena that you walk into, no cost can be too high for the bargain that we get with the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, remind us today that what we gain with the gospel is far greater than what we lose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.